When we talk about domestic violence, one of the most commonly asked questions is, why does he do that? To address that question and many others, author expert Lundy Bancroft joins the conversation. I'm Maria McMullen, and this is Genesis, the podcast. Bancroft has over 30 years' experience specializing in interventions for abusive men and their families. He has authored seven books, including the world's bestseller on domestic violence, Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men, and the prize-winning professional book, The Batterer as Parent. Lundy is the former training director of Emerge, the U.S. first counseling program for men who batter, and was involved in over 2,000 cases as counselor and clinical supervisor. He has served extensively as a custody evaluator, child abuse investigator, and expert witness. His new book and first novel is In Custody, a Carrie Green Mystery, which explores the corruption in the family court system. Listen to the end of this episode for the author's own reading of a passage from In Custody. Lundy Bancroft, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. So we're going to talk about your book and a lot of other things, but uh, your book, Why Does He Do That?, was published nearly 20 years ago. Can you believe that? I mean, it just seems... It's it's been a long haul. I actually was just talking to a friend about it yesterday and and thinking like, 20 years is a long time, and it's, it's, it's... unfortunately, has stayed very necessary. Yeah, it's still timely uh, to this day, that's for sure. And it's become and continues to be nearly a training manual or textbook for people working in the field of domestic violence. There aren't that many books that can claim that level of relevancy. And at Genesis Women's Shelter and Support, the book is really required reading for our team. All new hires and on the clinical team at a minimum are required to read Why Does He Do That?, so I'm curious, and our, our clinical team was curious as well, when you wrote the book and some of the subsequent publications like the workbook, did you ever imagine that it would be used so diligently by professionals who work with survivors? No, I really didn't. I mean, I I didn't understand how different the perspective was. You know, the fact that I was coming from, from the perspective of having spent a lot of time around the abusers, around the offenders, while while staying completely on the women's side, because I think a lot of people who do work a lot with abusers start to get a little drawn in because they're very good storytellers. They're very persuasive. And fortunately, I worked in a kind of organization that kept that from happening. And also I worked in an organization where we stayed in touch with the victim. So if the guy started to kind of lull us to sleep, the woman would wake us up and say, no, that's not what's going on. That's not true. He's, you know, snowing you. And so I didn't realize how, quite how unusual the, the perspective was that I was bringing and how important it was going to be, how useful it was going to be to people in the field. Yeah, and yet here we are. I mean, and that's a great way of putting it uh kind of being, quote unquote, lulled to sleep and needing the survivors to wake us up. And we do that. Uh, in the work that we do at Genesis and and other places as well, um, we listen to survivors because they really are the experts and give us the perspective that we need on what's happening in their in their homes and in their personal situation. 
Um, I wanted to touch on one aspect of the book uh, before we we go too far down the path of of other things um, and talk about the types of abusive men that you included in the book. And perhaps you can address some of the cultural differences as well in these types because you indicated in the book that there are some variations of the types based on geography, ethnicity, and so on. So when, when a woman is being really mistreated in a relationship, it's, it's typically not going to fit some kind of stereotypical, stereotypical image that she's carrying. So she may have a, a notion of like what an abuser or what a batterer would look like. And her partner usually isn't going to fit that image. And so she's going to think, oh, well, this isn't really abused because he doesn't actually hit me with a fist. Or there are days when he's nice. Or the, he was so great for the first couple of years we were together. Or, you know, a bunch of other things that somehow is not going to fit her stereotype and her image. And so she's going to think, well, then this must not really be abuse. So even though I'm being treated horribly over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So a lot of why I explained about these different types of abusers, these different styles of abuse is to help the woman recognize her partner in this and be able to say, Oh, that that's my partner right there. And understand that, yes, this is abuse. That, 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 that sort of image that people have an abuser as a drunk who comes home from work on Friday night and, beats up his wife and his kids and everybody in town hates him and everyone knows how violent he is. Like that guy is not the rule. He's the exception. And so I, I talk about these types in the book that I find much more common of what women have to deal with. And I'll just give a few examples. I talk about a type that I call the victim who is just constantly talking about what a hard life he's had and how hard his childhood was and how mean everybody is to him and how mean his boss is to him. And then she's not supposed to have any complaints about him. Like, it's not, it's not that you shouldn't be involved with a guy who's had a hard life. It's fine to be involved with a guy who's had a hard life. It's that he uses his stories about hard life to excuse every way he treats her. It's like, well, you shouldn't be mad at me because I had such a bad childhood. Or you can't complain about this or that about how I behave or how I treat you because people have been mean to me my whole life. And now you're being mean again. Well, that style is, is not uncommon among abusers, where he's really mean to her, but then always right back to, oh, you know, poor me, poor me, poor me, poor me. Mm-hmm. That's different from people's image of this boxer, violent style of abuser. Uh, I talk about a style that I call the player, who's a guy who, who the way he controls her is by constantly making her feel one down compared to other women. So he's always talking about how beautiful other women are and and maybe comparing her like, why can't she look more like them? And he's cheating on her or at least keeping her feeling like he's cheating on her. Like he's always trying to keep her off balance. She never quite feels that special. She's always working hard to, to be the special one in his life. And he's completely devaluing her. He's manipulating her. And he's he's using his style with other women to keep her under his thumb. Now, that style of abuser sometimes is not a physically violent at all, purely psychological abuse. And that style is sometimes not even that much verbal abuse. It's all about the constant mental assault on your your worth. You're just constantly being made to feel unattractive, useless. He's making you a low priority. He's not showing up for things. 
And so before I give a couple more examples, let me just say that the underlying principle here is that an abuser is someone who tears you down psychologically over and over and over again over time. It doesn't have to have an element of, of hurting you physically or even putting you physically in fear. It usually does have the element of at least scaring you, but it doesn't have to, to be abused. It's about constantly tearing you down over time so that you're just feeling more and more hurt and wounded and mistreated as the years go by. And it can come in a lot of different packages. Yeah. And I, 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 I thank you for pointing that out because a lot of people, when they hear the term domestic violence or intimate partner violence, they immediately think if it's not physical, then it's not violence. And the, the majority of abusers do use violence at some point, but often not what you would think of as physical violence. It's often not like a punch in the face. It's often he locked her in the room. Well, that's a violent act. Mm -hmm. Or he pinned her. Well, that's a violent act. Uh, or maybe he didn't even get his hands on her, but he said, you better watch out or you're going to get hurt. That's a violent act mm -hmm. because he's threatening to hurt her physically. And those, those acts most people don't even define as violence, partly because we live in a very violent society. So unless you get punched in the eye with a closed fist till your eye swells shut, that's often not even defined as violence. And then a lot of abusers are very sexually assaultive. They're grabbing her all the time in ways that she doesn't want or that are humiliating sexually. They're pressuring her into sexual acts that she doesn't like and doesn't want. They're totally ignoring her sexual needs. Uh, and, you know, sexual assault is violence, but that often, the sexual assaults often don't get involved in violence, don't get, I'm sorry, defined as violence. And there are a lot of abusers where all their violence is sexual. So people don't say, might say, oh, well, he's not really violent because it's all, it's not with his hands or his fists in that kind of way. It's like sexual violence. I mean, it is with his hands, but it's not, it's, it's just, it has a very different, it's in a different category in people's minds than when you're being a, you know, physically assaulted in rage, you know, that, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So the, but, but there are abusers where there isn't even the element of putting her in fear physically, which you're pointing out. And that's very important for people to understand that it can tear your life to shreds. An abuser can tear your life to shreds without ever raising a hand to you. Yeah. I mean, there's coercive control. There's financial abuse, you know, if not allowing someone to work or not letting them keep their paycheck when they when they did go to work. There, there are many different types of abuse that don't leave any, quote unquote, uh, visible bruises. You know, Rachel Louise Snyder wrote the book, No Visible Bruises. And um, there just sometimes are, is no trace of it left behind physically for people to point to, but we know that it's there. And, you know, when, you, when you've been hit, you know what was just done. Mm -hmm. But when you come out of a certain interaction just feeling horrible, you can't even figure out, like, wait a minute, why am I feeling so bad? And because you've just been totally messed with, manipulated, demeaned or whatever, but it's harder to put your finger on. And so women in those circumstances often just feel like, well, I'm, I'm just reacting to nothing. It's like, no, you're not reacting to nothing. It's just different. It's not the physical violence. And there are a couple of things that I really like to draw people's attention to. One is to is that part of, to me what defines abuse is that the abuser is always making his behavior her fault. So really be careful of a partner who's 
telling you that you're responsible for his actions. You're responsible for your actions, but you're not responsible for his actions. You don't make him do things. And as soon as a guy starts to say, you made me do that, watch out because he's trouble. And not only that, but it will, unfortunately, over a period of years, it will work. In other words, over a period of years, you will start to be convinced that it is your fault. I've hardly ever talked to an abused woman who hasn't struggled with, well, maybe I am making him be this way. And that's really, really psychologically toxic. No one has the right to tell you that you're causing their behavior. And then another thing I really like to draw people's attention to is when, when you object to things that he does, notice if you pay a price for that, because that's another one of the marks of an abuser. With a non-abusive partner who's also going to do some things that bother you, our partners are always going to do some things that bother us, uh, you can raise the issues that bother you and not get punished for that. It may not solve the problem, but you're not going to get punished for having raised it. When you're involved with an abuser, you get punished for complaining about what he does. Again, not necessarily in, in the form of a physical assault. He's going to do something else mean, something else that's going to injure you or humiliate you. And so that's just an, another, another dynamic to really zero in on. Like, am I afraid to raise certain issues? Well, that's a, that's a big sign that something's wrong if you're afraid to raise certain issues. It's not your fault if you're afraid to raise issues because you're afraid of the price you're going to pay. Yeah, for sure. There are certain red flags that definitely stand out. And I'm really glad you called out some of these things because we spend a lot of time on this podcast and on the podcast on crimes against women talking about or reminding people what these red flags are. Because it seems, even though we talk about it almost incessantly, and and your book goes into great detail about these ideas and these red flags, people still don't always get it. We're still drawn back to, well, he didn't hit her. So, or, you know, uh, sexual assault in marriage is is not actually a sexual assault. There's no such thing as, as you know, rape within marriage, which isn't true. Um, that's actually illegal, uh, I think, in every state now. Um, so you also brought up kind of the survivor's response or rationalization to these types of behaviors. So let's talk about that and um, how survivors, specifically women, try to find the source of the behavior and then self-blame around an abusive partner's behavior. What is she thinking? What is she, what is she asking herself to try to rationalize this? So we're, I think we're told all over the place in our society that when a man is behaving abusively towards a woman, it's because of pain that he's in. It's because he's suffering on some emotional level and his pain is causing him to behave the way he's behaving. And I, actually, that's what I believed. When I came into working with abusers, I thought I was going to be dealing with uh, these, this, the deep internal suffering that these guys had that was causing them to mistreat women the way they were. And it turned out to have nothing to do with it. I mean, I was, I was, it, it was quite a surprise for me and quite a digestion process during my first couple years in the field of having to realize that these guys aren't any more unhappy than non-abusive men are. And, and even the ones who are unhappy, their unhappiness has nothing to do with why they're treating women the way they're treating them. But because that's such a widespread belief, that's how everybody talks about abusers. Abusers in books and movies are almost always portrayed as men that are just full of suffering. The, the, and a, a 
a specific abused woman is going to tend to feel like I've got to figure out what's bothering him. And unfortunately, people around her are typically going to say the same thing. Well, why why do you think he gets so upset? And, And, oh, why do you think he's so insecure? And how could you help him not be so insecure? And it's all up to her to try to figure out how to solve it. Well, the reality is that the problem doesn't exist in his heart. The problem exists in his mind. And I'm not saying that all psych- that all problems in human life are caused by our thinking. I think there are some problems that really are come from our hearts, from emotional wounds. It's just that men's abuse of women does not. Men's abusive behavior turns out to be almost entirely based on attitude and values and have very little to do with the man's psychology. In fact, it's hard with any kind of psychological evaluation to it's next to impossible, actually, with psychological evaluation to distinguish between abusive and non-abusive men, because the problem is not in their heart, the problem is in their head, and it's specifically in their their attitudes. The, the, the abusive man is highly entitled towards women, and he thinks he has the right to rule in a relationship, and he thinks that a woman entire life should be devoted to catering to his needs, and her needs, her personality, her ambitions should just go right out the window. So it doesn't matter if she makes him feel better. She may be somewhat successful in making him feel better and he's not going to treat her any better. It's, it's, it's in the more, in fact, the more successful she is at making him feel better, the more it's like, Oh, this is working for me. That's the sort of the abuser's way of looking at it. Like, Oh yeah, she's, she's working really hard to please me. That's what I want. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to back up for a second, and you said that, you know, this is about a person who is highly entitled toward women. How would you suppose that he got that way? Is this a result of our cultural grooming, if you will, of, you know, this this highly patriarchal culture that we live in? It's very heavily cultural. You know, his, his, his certainly his father and his stepfather father, if he had one, his uncles, his grandparents, you know, the, the men in his family, in his family tree are a very important influence, but they're not the whole influence. It, it is a, a huge cultural problem. And, and we're not talking about a specific culture. I can say a couple things about specific cultures, but, but what we're talking about now is cultural in the sense of societal. Like what, are the, yeah. what, are, what are the, what are the predominant values that run through a society? And I am, as many people would guess, a former boy, and the the I can tell you all kinds of things about the kinds of messages we got as boys. I grew up in what I would consider a fairly enlightened part of the world, and nonetheless, I was constantly, as a boy, getting messages about you know, what females owe males, like what you're, you know, what you. It's like this real you owe me kind of attitude. You should be doing this for me. You should be doing this for me. You should be doing this for me. There, there are constantly images in books and television and movies of how men get women back if the women aren't willing to cater to them. And we have almost every day in life just, just interactions on the street where the message gets across from a man to a woman you are here to to do for me. You know, like the, the, you know, haven't you got a smile for me today, honey? That sends a message. You are here to do for me. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, in the lives of a lot of boys, there are 
counter messages to those. I mean, every boy is getting the bad messages, but fortunately, a lot of boys are also getting a lot of positive messages, and fortunately, will in many cases be enough positive messages so that they don't get sucked in to to that attitude of just treating women as sort of subhuman and being there to meet our needs. But but that thinking is very widespread. So that's a very big influence on why uh, some boys, quite a number of boys, something like one in six, unfortunately, will grow up to be abusers, at least one in six will grow up to be abusers. Probably more than that, because one in six is really looking at a standard that includes at least some physical violence. And as we were saying, some abusers, there's no element of physical violence. The Another big influence is uh, their peers during their teen years, the, the guys, there's, and there's research on this showing that guys who start hanging out with, with other boys during their teen years who are, who are treating females badly and being disrespectful and looking down on females, uh, those, the boys who are part of that crowd are much more likely to become that way themselves. So that's an important influence. Pornography is an important influence and not because it's sexual. And I know there are people who object to pornography because it's sexual. That's not, I don't believe that's the issue and why it helps produce abusers. The reason it helps produce abusers is because the, of the type of sexuality that pornography is teaching. And pornography is teaching a type of sexuality where the woman's humanity doesn't matter. She's there as a thing to use. And she's in pornography, she's no different really from just some kind of inflatable doll. She's, yeah, she's just an object. And then certain specific loud training that people, that men get from their society like some men learn from their religious training very explicitly, the woman must obey you. And to that, to me, the key distinction or one of the key distinctions and who becomes an abuser is, does he believe that he has the right to enforce? And so I, I in, in recent years in particular, I've started to talk a lot more about enforcement because people will ask me, well, how do I know if he's an abuser? How do I know if this just isn't like his culture, like the country he comes from, the culture he grew up in? Or how do I know if this is abuse? How, how do I know if it just isn't just his religious beliefs? Like maybe his religion just teaches a more traditional belief about how men should be and how women should be. And my answer to that is that the answer is, is there whether there's enforcement or not? That's the answer. If there's enforcement... In other words, if you get punished for not obeying, then that's not culture. That's abuse. That's not religion. That's abuse. That's not tradition. That's abuse. If a man believes that the man should be the breadwinner and the woman should take care of the home and raise the kids, that's tradition. But what happens when the woman says, no deal? I'm not doing this. I'm gonna, I want some financial control over the picture and I don't wanna be trapped. I love these kids, but I don't wanna be trapped in the house all the time. What happens to her for doing that? Does she pay a price? Does she get punished for saying she doesn't wanna do that? As soon as she gets punished, that's not tradition anymore. That's abuse. So I think it's really useful to focus on the question of, does he enforce his opinions? As soon as he's enforcing his opinions, then, then, then he's an abuser. And you had asked earlier about, about the role of culture. And what I've observed about culture, there's, there's two or three things I'll, I'll, I'll focus on. One is that 
as far as anybody can tell, women are abused in every modernized culture. There are some cultures that have been found, and, and there's been some writing in the social science literature about that, where, there, where the abuse of women does not exist. But those are tribal cultures that are existing in a very different kind of social system where life is just much less hierarchical in general, not just between men and women, but there's not much of a hierarchy between rich and poor. They're just much more egalitarian kind of equal societies. And they're, they're like traditional tribal or clan setups. Well, there's not tons of that left in the world today. And, and it still does exist, but, but most tribes now have had to mix with modernized culture in, in all kinds of ways. And in modernized culture, the abuse of women is all over the place. Mm-hmm. So, it's, it doesn't make sense to think that, oh, this guy's an abuser because of his specific culture. He's an abuser because of modern culture, period. His specific culture will shape, the, will shape what his abuse is like. So an abuser from one country or one religion will use a different set of excuses than the abuser from another country or another religion will use. But the abuse comes out pretty much the same in what the experience is for women. And I caution people who keep thinking about, oh, those countries where women are so badly treated. If you look at the statistics, the United States is not good. (laughs) The United States statistically with respect to male violence against women is above average in those statistics. We're not way above average. We're not one of the top countries in violence against women, but we're not one of the low ones. We're We're not even in the middle. We're above middle. We're a high average country. I've I've read a bunch of international comparison studies. We're a high average country. So it doesn't make any sense to like look down on those countries. It certainly doesn't make sense to send our army in thinking, oh, we're going to help the women in such and such a country when we're not a country that treats women well and we're not a military that treats women well. So why why would it make sense to send our army in to help women in some country? That is an excellent point. I mean... We could stop right there. You're absolutely right. And also, you know, the United States is the highest uh, rated country for gun violence. And oftentimes domestic violence includes some form of firearms, uh, some form of violence with firearms. And so all over the map, we have a lot of problems in this country that we need to solve related to gender-based violence. Um, Shall we talk again for a minute just about uh, what survivors are thinking in all of these scenarios, because I, you you brought up to me previously some really important points. Um, so, for instance, the generational connection of perpetuating violence, because oftentimes a survivor can approach her own family with the notion that, hey, I'm being abused by the person I'm married to, and either because they, they really love this this partner that she has and, and you know, he's done a, a really good job of hiding his true abusive nature from them and so they just find it difficult to believe he's an abuser and or generationally it's just accepted that power and control over the, you know, from the, the husband over the wife is the way that it is. Can we talk about that a little bit? I get, I get so distressed by women's stories of their own families either refusing to back her up or even worse, actively siding with the abuser. The stories are, are painful stories. And it's 
And I'm, I'm, I'm angry at those families. That's so wrong to abandon your daughter in that kind of way. Mm -hmm. And so the, there, there, there are a number of things that I see go on there. One is just uh, people having a huge investment in public image. And it's like, well, we want to be the family that looks a certain way. We want our kids married. We want grandchildren. We want to, you know, our sons and daughters to be in good lines of work. It's like all, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a very status conscious focus that I find really, really upsetting because when, what, what happens then when you have this status consciousness is the woman discloses to her family and their orientation, rather than being, oh my God, our daughter's being treated badly. We don't want our daughter to suffer. Their orientation is, let's see, how can we keep this from hurting our public image mm -hmm. focuses on save the relationship. Don't tell anybody about this, find a way to settle him down by pleasing him even more. And, and she gets completely abandoned in the process. Uh, another dynamic. Yeah. And I just want to, I just want to interject there to say it's almost as it's, this isn't about, uh, you know, her safety and well being. This is how can we not look like a failure? as a family, you know, if, if this ends up in a divorce or this ends up in court or, she, you know, she's being abused. I mean, it makes us all look bad in a sense. And so how can we avoid that when the reality is, is they should be getting her to safety and supporting her and what, you know, just trying to get this abusive person out of their, out of their family, because that's, what's really bringing down the status. That that's exactly right. And, and and public image should never come ahead of our children's well-being and our children's fundamental rights. Right. Uh, so then another dynamic is that abusers, to a considerable extent, are aware, at least unconsciously, sometimes even consciously aware, of the possibility that the woman's going to disclose at some point. And so they they try to prepare ahead of time for that possibility. And so, for example, with friends and relatives, they will often, when she's not around, start preparing the ground with, with by example, by telling them stories about times that the woman has just gotten so irrational for no reason and start saying, you know, sometimes she just flips out about things and I can't. So he's been make, telling them this kind of story for years so that by the time she discloses to them, he's already planted all this stuff in their heads that he is such a good guy. He's such a calm, reasonable person. And she just flies off the handle for no reason. And so that, so when she discloses, they're already thinking like, oh, yeah, this is what he was talking about. Like she just sees something. He's obviously not an abusive guy. He's such a nice guy. And, and so this is exactly what what he was telling us. And now she's making him into some kind of an abuser. Like that's how she just blows stuff up out of proportion. And so that, that dynamic is, is yeah. often at play. And in reality, I mean, he's gaslighting everybody while he's abusing right. her. He's then gaslighting everyone who knows him into believing that he's one way when, and she's, and she's abusive and she's crazy. When and people are, are convinced I find almost everybody is is convinced that 
you could tell which men are abusive to women by what they're like in other situations, what they're like at work, what they're like at the softball game, what they're like at the company picnic. And those of us in the field, as I'm sure you folks deal with all the time, mm. have to constantly be saying, we can't tell anything about what kind of uh, partner he's going to be in private with a woman based on how he is in any of those other contexts. And of course, we get news story after news story after news story about a person, usually a man, who turned out to be a murderer or who knows what all else, and nobody knew. But we seem to have trouble as a society absorbing that lesson. And so as soon as we're back to a specific situation, people are very prepared to say, oh, no, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be like that. He's just not that. I know him, and he's just not that kind of guy. It's like, have you ever been involved with him in a long-term relationship? If not, you don't know. <laughs> You have no way of knowing. That, so that's part. Of that's actually there. a great question. It, it's as it's as good as why does he do that? I mean, have you been in a long term relationship with this person? Then you would not really know, right? And the and so it's very hard for family members who've been worked by this guy because abusers tend to work people. Mm-hmm. You know, I did I did a whole chapter in why does he do that called the abuser and his allies because the abusers are just always out working people and recruiting allies very hard for family members to face the fact that they've been wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, so that becomes an important dynamic. And then one more that I want to mention is that all relationships have difficulties. Even the best relationships have difficulties. So a relationship between two sisters who adore each other, there's still going to be some tensions in that relationship. Sure. Between parents and their adult children who love each other, there's still going to be some difficulties in that relationship, some bad feeling about certain things. And abusers know how to look for where those bad feelings are and exploit them. So like I give the example of children, uh, parents who are upset that their daughter has, has drifted away from the church and doesn't go to church anymore. That's the kind of situation where the abuser is going to start to think, Ooh, how can I exploit this division? Well, the, the, and I've had this happen with actual clients of mine. He suddenly starts going to their church, the parents' church. And he starts saying, oh, you know, I'm really upset that she's drifted away from the church, too. And he's bonding with the parents because he knows that's something they're upset about. And he'll do that to drive sisters and, and brothers away from her. He'll, he'll look, he'll try to figure out, like, what are the, where are the weak spots in this relationship? What are the tensions in this relationship? And how can I exploit them to drive these people apart? That, that seems like some really dark psychology to me. It is, except that I think they do it almost without, it's almost like on automatic. Like abusers have just started to develop these patterns from such a young age. Some of them are, are some of them are really dark. Some of them know very consciously what they're doing. But others, like, like my job a lot as a counselor for abusers was to get them to become aware of their own thinking, their own kind of unconscious thinking. And, I'll, and, and I would say like, wait a minute, you went in there, figured out where there was bad feeling between her and her cousin, and started figuring out how to get the cousin even more upset about those things to turn her against your wife. And like after a few weeks, the guy might start to say, yeah, you know what, you're right, I was doing. So, so it's, 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 it's almost on automatic. I don't think it's accidental. Yeah. <laughs> the difference between doing something on automatic and doing something by accident. They don't do it by accident. But they don't very. They do almost nothing by accident. So they yeah. always claim. It. They yeah, and I, I mean, I, I believe. 
I do do some things on automat. I I, I I'm so excited about everything you're saying. Um, I believe everything you're saying, and it, it's just hard, you know, to as a person who I don't believe that I would ever do that, and I and a lot of people I know I I, I don't think would either. It's hard to get your mind around spending time on how to manipulate someone in that way. I mean, it's it's so negative, and so uh, no good can really come of it. Um, ultimately. It seems it's like remarkable it. how early in a in a boy's life he starts to get the message: you need to learn how to control and dominate women and females. And you learn from a very early age. You start to learn what I call an extraction mentality, by which I mean you start to learn from very early age how to extract things from females, whether they want to give them to you or not. And then some boys are growing up in families where that. That's not just kind of a, a subtle underlying message in their town or their society. It's like daily from their father getting ground into them and their uncles and their grandparents, grandfathers. You know, it's like this is you got, you know, you've got to behave this way. You're not a man if you don't do these things. You, you know, you've got to keep an eye on women every second because they're going to try, you know, they're going to try to do things to you. So you got to, you know, and it's the 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 earlier a certain kind of training begins, the harder it is to overcome. It becomes your whole worldview. I mean, abusers have this whole way of looking at women and about male-female relationships. When I first start talking to an abuser in an abuser group, he feels almost like I'm, you know, speaking Greek to him because mm -hmm. it's just so outside of everything he's heard, how his relatives have always talked, how his buddies have always talked the kinds of movies he watches, the kind of television he watches, the kind of music he listens to is all just totally reinforcing this oppressive mentality. So tell us a little bit more about how extraction, give us some examples of that if you can. So, so the extraction mentality and men who abuse women aren't the only person in society who have the extraction mentality. It is the mentality that like, I'm not going to respect what you want to give me or not give me. I'm going to figure out how to make you give me what I want. And I'm going to do that playing both hard and soft. So the soft stuff is going to be, I'm going to flatter you a lot. I'm going to love bomb you. Your listeners are probably familiar with the concept of love bombing, where you just come at somebody with this, like, almost like drowning them in love. Like you're the most beautiful woman I've ever known. You're amazing. I've never felt like this before. You're incredible. Yeah. And it's a very powerful way of coming at a woman and it's manipulative. And, but it just makes her feel like, wow, I've never had a guy so crazy about me. This just feels great. And, and so there'll be the whole soft part of the, part of the routine to sort of set, set you up so he can extract from you. And then there'll be the hard side, which is the, you know, starting subtly to put you down, starting subtly to make little comments about your weight and starting, you know, to not speak kind of negatively about your family or kind of negatively about your friends or kind of negatively about your intelligence. On and, on and, on. and the point is to try to get you to a place where he can just take and early in the relationship, first few months, even first year or two, sometimes he's going to seem really generous. And then over time, you start to realize this guy is so selfish. He's everything the opposite of generous. And he's figuring out how to get you to work harder in the house. And he's figuring out how to get you to work harder at paying attention to him and always making him feel better. And, oh, God, I better do whatever's going to make him feel better because there's going to be hell to pay if I don't. Uh, sex becomes more and more 
about pleasing him and less and less about some sort of mutual sharing and and less and less any interest in meeting her sexual needs. It's just all about him. And often, you know, with abusers, pretty commonly, not always, but pretty commonly, he's also going to start to have affairs. And it's a, it's a terrible way of thinking about a human being because it, it's, it's not seeing a human being as a human being. It's seeing a human being as like your garden. Like I'm going to dig in here and make this with a shovel and make this produce what I want it to produce. And that it, you know, it stops being she, it stops being a person more like a thing. That's why I'm saying it, I'm going to make it produce what I want it to produce. And the, the extraction mentality is the mentality that allows uh, people who want to make a lot of money to go into a beautiful piece of land and destroy it and pollute it. And so I'm not saying that men who abuse women are the only ones with the extraction mentality, but it's the, wherever the extraction mentality arises, it's extremely destructive. And it's the driving force to me in men's abuse of women is the extraction mentality. Those are great examples. Thank you for, for sharing all of that. Um, you know, you talked about enforcement and you talked about extraction. Are those included in, in the book? Why does he do that? And then also, is there anything else you, you would include now, like, you know, if you had written the book here in 2023? I, uh, I don't think I use the term enforcement or extraction. I, mean, I talk a lot about enforcement, but not using that exact term. And I talk quite a bit really about extraction, but without using that term. So those are, those are ways of zeroing in on what I believe that are, are, are the central problems that I've come to in more recent years. And, and I'm always learning. You talk about how we always need to be learning from survivors in particular, who have definitely been my teachers. And there's no, there's no end to what there is to learn. Uh, I wish I had written more about financial abuse. I made little references to it, but I don't feel like I said nearly enough about it. You made a reference to it early in our discussion today. There's so much just ripping women off financially that I'm um, borrowing money is one of the phrase, one of the things I hear about a lot. He's borrowing money and he's saying, I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to pay you back. And he never does. And there seems to be this story that a lot of abusers tell about a bunch of money that he's going to come into soon. Like, oh, you know, I've got this inheritance I'm about to be getting, or I've got this settlement for workers' comp that I'm about to be getting. It's going to come really soon, and then I'm going to pay you all this money back. And he never does. And when the relationship ends, he tends to leave her with debt, with often with her credit damaged. He manipulates belongings to get them under his control, whose name things are in, the car, the house. And if they're legally married in some states, you're you're still going to have some protection, even if he manipulated things into his name. It really depends on your particular state laws. Sometimes you don't have such great protection. But also, if you're not married, he's pretty free to manipulate things into his own name. Mm -hmm. And he may be someone who doesn't like to work very much, really wants to live off of her money, or he may be the opposite. He may be someone who does like to work and doesn't want her to work much because doesn't want her to have any financial independence. But e either way, he creates tremendous financial stress for the woman. And either way, the money is all going to him. So I wish I had said more about, about financial and economic abuse, because that it's, 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 I, I mentioned in the book, but you might get the impression that it's not that common or that big a part of the pattern. And it's very common, and very big part of the, pattern the those are the biggest things that i would want to say more 
Um, it's a long book, so I, I don't wouldn't want to say too much more about anything. <laughs> it is a long book, uh, but it's a great book. I highly recommend it uh, for sure. And I think you're right about financial abuse. I mean that that's a book in its entirety. It's a topic that you can't really say too much about, um, and it's become more and more uh, obvious and uh, prevalent. In, in at least in the cases that we see at Genesis, is because money is a great way to enforce power and control over someone. It really is. It really is. And another thing I suppose I would write about, but try to keep it brief, is that I'm, I'm concerned about the fact that the term abuser is being dropped and is being replaced by the term narcissist. Mm. And... There are some people that I really like that are doing this, so I don't want to suggest that somehow it's bad people who are doing it, but it's a mistake. And the reason it's a mistake is that narcissism is a condition that's caused by early childhood wounds, and abusiveness is a condition that's caused by societal training into male domination. And so when we stop talking about abusers and call them narcissists, we stop dealing with the issue of what an oppressive society we live in, and we're suddenly just looking at what went wrong in his family. And that, in turn, is going to lend itself very easily to zeroing in on his mother. And the, the abusers and, and their allies have always been out to find some way to make women at fault. Same as what happens with rape. There's always this, like, how can we make women to blame for this? And unfortunately, the, the whole move towards referring to abusers as narcissists is playing well, perfectly into a, a, a system that's going to allow people who want to, to get back to blaming women for things and to, to take, to not, then the, also that means the community is not responsible. We don't have to do anything about how our community treats abused women. We don't have to do anything about the values in our community. We don't have to do anything about political beliefs in our community. We can just say, oh, he grew up in a dysfunctional family and he became a narcissist. It totally lets the community off the hook. And I believe the community is responsible for domestic violence. And the, the percentage of abusers who are true narcissists is surprisingly low. When you look at the research, it turns out that most of them are not true narcissists. They look so much like narcissists because a very high level of entitlement will lead to behaviors and attitudes that are quite similar with a narcissist. But there are all kinds of things, and I've written about this extensively on my blog, that you can look at that'll show you, no, this guy is not a true narcissist, but he's a horrible abuser of women. And he may be one of the worst abusers of women in the world and still not be a narcissist. And to your point, it not only lets com the community off the hook, it lets the individual off the hook. It lets the abuser off the hook because he can now have this excuse. Well, you know, it, it was the way that I was raised. It was everything I experienced. I I'm a, I'm, have narcissistic personality disorder, and thereby that is the reason I may or may not be abusive and deal with me. Um, and I'm right. not going to accept so that either. Have, so I don't have to look at my. So I don't have to look at my attitudes towards women. Exactly, and I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that to the conversation. And I'm not willing to accept that either. And I know that we're not willing to accept it at Genesis at all. Um, no more excuses, right? So uh, I also wanted to ask you about something. Um, I attended a recent presentation you gave, and you used the term "modern batterer." 
I'm curious, I didn't get to ask this uh, in the Q&A of that presentation, but what does that term mean to you? And is it found within the, te- like the types of abusive men that you talk about in uh, Why Does He Do That? Uh, it's not in the types and why does he do that? Because I think all all of those types are are changing over time and 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 taking a more modern form. The the abusers are a product of society, as you and I have been saying, and that means that they are also going to be their shape is going to change as the society changes. It doesn't mean they're going to become less abusive, but it just means the style is going to change as the society changes. So we live in a period, for example when it's much less acceptable than it was 40 years ago for fathers to just leave the mother with all the work of raising the kids. Like it's now very heavily a a value in the, in, in modern society that the father really should be contributing to the childcare. So uh, abusers are quite a bit more involved with childcare than they used to be. Uh, That's not necessarily good news because they're power and control oriented, as you've mentioned, and that and they just do power oriented parenting. And and, uh, you know, I've written some about power, power parenting and what that looks like. And, but, you know, that gives it a different shape. He's likely to contribute more to general household work than an abuser did 30 or 40 years ago. When I first started into the field, abusers were doing nothing to help in the house. Now, again, because of societal changes. He's more likely to help some with cooking. He's more likely to help some with cleaning. Not a lot, mind you, Mm -hmm. but particularly where other people might notice he's more likely to do it because abusers, as they always have been, are very concerned with their public image. He's not going to show up for cleaning up vomit. He's not going to show up for the third, fourth time you've had to wake up in the middle of the same night for a crying child. But take the kids to the park. Yeah, he's likely to show up for that because nowadays fathers are supposed to be involved and he can like take the kids to the park and show what a great involved father he is. And so the modern batterer is, is a little more of that style. He has become, it's again, it's not a lot more contributing, but it's a little more contributing and it looks good and it creates confusion because people think, Oh, well, you know, a, a, a domestic abuser wouldn't be like making everybody a nice dinner or wouldn't be like, that. <laughs> right. it's like sure he would. Sure he would, not his share, but sure he would. And so he's gotten a tiny bit better in those areas or just more manipulative. And then he's gotten worse with respect to his constant demands for attention. The, 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 the modern abuser is just so demanding that she has to focus on him every second. She has to build up his ego. She has to tell him what a great guy he is. She has to give him constant reassurance. As soon as he comes in the door, she's got to drop whatever she's doing, forget her phone calls, forget her own friends, forget even the kids. He's got to, she's got to instantly focus on him. That existed. I'm not saying that didn't exist, but it's just 30 or 40 years ago, but it's gotten worse. His, so his focus nowadays is often less on, on household service. And the traditional batterer was so focused on household service. And, and he tends to be more focused now on emotional service. But it's still just service. It's still like endless work for her, and it's now ne- it's still never good enough for him. There are definitely nuances, right? That kind of change with the times. But abuse is abuse is abuse. I mean, it it it, it goes on and on. Um, a couple other things I wanted to ask you about uh, while we have a few minutes left. I want to talk about your novel in custody. 
What is the story about and why did you decide to compose a fictional story based on your own real life experiences with the family court system? Abused women I find all over the over all over the world now. It's not just in the US now because this is this problem has spread all over the world are finding a very different response from the custody courts than they were expecting. They assumed that the custody courts once they knew that he had abused her would not want him to be around the children too much and would want to make sure to support her as a mom. And for over 20 years now, that, that has not been the case. For over 20 years now, the, the, the family law systems in the US and Canada and now spreading all over the world have become very favorable to abusers. That's not what they would say. They would say, we're just trying to keep fathers involved, but they're, they're refusing to take the domestic violence history seriously and they're keeping a, a horribly abusive father just as involved as you would keep a non-abusive father. They're giving him the same, essentially the same parenting schedule. They're allowing him to do tremendous post-separation damage, particularly to mother-child relationships, because that's what these guys most do post-separation, is try to destroy kids' relationship with their moms. So people have wanted me for a long time to write a book about what are abusers like post-separation and, and how is the how and why is the family law system so completely abandoning children to their abusive fathers? The, 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 the family law system, I believe, has become the number one enabler in the country of, of children's exposure to domestic violence and children's uh, exposure directly to sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like if I wrote that book, nobody was going to read it except for people who already got it. And I thought, you know, if I write like a, a, an entertaining mystery and suspense novel with some, with some romance and and uh, some Intrigue. humor, <laughs> it, that that you know maybe it would get to a lot more people. And so that's why I wrote in custody. It's a novel about a mom and a children who disappear in the midst of a custody battle. It's really not clear why they've disappeared. In fact, it's quite confusing to investigators because there's quite strong evidence showing that they left of their own accord, that they chose to flee, and quite strong evidence that they were kidnapped. And so the police are, are, are in a tough position because there's quite strong evidence pointing in these two opposite-seeming directions. And... and uh, the it's it's hard to tell the, the 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 father is is furious he's saying that the family court that he's been saying for a long time that they were going to flee that he knows they fled uh, he insists that they left of their own accord he doesn't believe anyone who's saying that they may have been kidnapped and uh he's turning out to be someone who's been playing the family court as a weapon against her for a long time so that's as much as I can say without without blowing the rest of what happens in the novel. But uh, I'm I'm still hoping that it'll that it'll catch on in a way where where we can hand it to people who don't know anything about domestic abuse, who don't know anything about the family law system or how child custody has been twisted by abusers to all around completely backwards. And the family courts are now just completely twisted around 180 degrees backwards. And and you learn a lot from this book about about what's gone wrong in the family law system and, and why it has. And so I'm just hoping, un unfortunately, people just don't associate me with fiction. You know, people associate me with self-help. And so 
the book so far is not reaching as many people as I wish it would because people think, well, why do I want to read a novel by Lundy Bancroft? What's Lundy Bancroft got to do with novels? So, but here's hoping it'll still catch on. It's caught on with me. I'm actually two thirds of the way through the book and I can, uh, I'm not going to, there'll be no spoilers here and I don't know the end of the story yet. So um, I I can't really spoil very much, but I, I can say that I think the working in the field of domestic violence with uh, exposure to all these different types of uh, abusive situations and survivors as well. I think the characters are representative of some of the uh, some of the things that we talked about today. Some of the forms of uh, violence against women, coercive control, manipulation, and so on. I think there are you'll find. Sometimes in fiction and storytelling, we find uh, it easier to relate to a character and say, ah, now I understand, you know, what that survivor meant by um, feeling manipulated or or something, just as an example, you know, something along those lines. So I, I highly encourage people to read Why Does He Do That? and In Custody, which is a Carrie Green novel, correct? Correct, which means there's going to be another. Right. I, I kind of figured if, if with a title like that, there was going to be another novel. <laughs> I would look forward to that as well. Um, how about you give us a sneak peek of uh, the novel In Custody and, and read something for our audience? So we're about two-thirds of the way into the book where, where the, the mom and daughter are still missing. The daughter has now been spotted a number of times. It's not clear if she's still with her mother. And uh, the the father is is chasing after them, claiming that he's trying to rescue his daughter, and claiming that his daughter is very eager to be reunited with him. So shortly after this, a woman standing with three or four other people at a bus stop in Brownfield, another Baton Rouge suburb, was approached by a young girl. I miss my bus, and my mom will be upset when I'm not on it. She said. Can I use your phone to tell her I'll be on the next one? The woman happily handed the kid her iPhone. The girl punched in numbers, waited a minute, then said, Hey, it's me. I'm at the corner of Foster and St. Francis, the bus stop here. Yeah, okay. Uh, Hang on a second. She took the phone away from her ear and said to the woman, Do you know what corner we're on, like north or east or whatever? The woman who traveled that bus line every day gave only a quick thought before telling her they were to the southeast. The girl relayed the information into the phone, then hung it up. She kept punching things into the phone as if starting to make another call, but then abruptly returned the phone. Oh, my mom said to wait here instead of getting on the next bus. She's going to pick me up. Seven or eight minutes later, the bus was overdue, so the woman was still standing there. When a red sedan came driving scary fast to the corner and braked heavily to a stop, the girl grabbed the passenger door and hopped in, The driver took the girl's hand for the most fleeting moment, and then the car sped off down St. Francis, a short side street, rather than continuing on Foster. The woman digested these events for a few moments until her bus finally arrived. Once aboard and seated, she looked at her phone, curious to see what number the girl had called, only to find her call history erased. She pondered the way the driver had taken the girl's hand. Don't you kiss your daughter or at least put your arm around her? Or maybe you're angry that you had to come pick her up, but in that case, you don't touch her at all. It was an odd gesture for a parent. And where is a girl who looks nine or 10 taking a bus in the morning except to school? But she had nothing in her hands, no book bag or backpack. Plus, 
she said that her mother had been expecting her to, to expecting to pick her up on the other end, which made no sense. Then it struck her that the woman driving had looked quite a bit too old to have a child that young. Flashing in her mind were public service ads about human trafficking, including one that said victims can become compliant with their captors due to trauma and threats. She dialed 911. So this is the this is one of the reports that comes into the police about about the missing the missing daughter that uh, where it's discovered now that she seems to be running on her own. Well, you've left you've left us all. No one knows why she would run on her own. Why wouldn't she go straight to the police if she got away from the kidnap? Right, and you've left us all in suspense now. I'm so glad. Yeah, I think that that was a perfect cliffhanger. Where can we find your books, and what is your website? The uh, my website is lundybancroft.com, and you can get the book indirectly through that. But ultimately, you're going to Amazon to get it, and you just look up in, in custody in Lundy Bancroft, and you'll see it. And it's in paperback and in Kindle. It is. Did you record an audiobook for that? I have not yet made an audiobook. One of these days. One of these days, because I think you, I think you know the voice for that book. It sounded really, <laughs> really good. Um, Thank you. Lundy Brancroft, thank you so much for talking with me. Everyone at Genesis is very excited that, that we have this opportunity, and I look forward to speaking to you again sometime. Good luck to you, and good luck to your audience. Thank you. Attention Spanish-speaking listeners. Listen to the end of this podcast for information on how to reach a Spanish-speaking representative of Genesis. Atención hispanohablantes, escucha este podcast hasta el final para recibir información de cómo comunicarse con el personal de Genesis en español. If you or someone you know is in an abusive relationship, you can get help or give help at genesisshelter.org or by calling or texting our 24-7 crisis hotline team at 214-946-HELP. 214-946-4357. Bilingual services at Genesis include text, phone call, clinical counseling, legal services, advocacy, and more. Call or text us for more information. Donations to support women and children escaping domestic violence are always needed. Learn more at genesisshelter.org donate. Thanks for joining us. I'm reminding you always that ending domestic violence begins when we believe her. Genesis, el podcast, anuncia servicios bilingües disponibles en Genesis Women's Shelter y Support. Si usted o una conocida está en una relación abusiva, puede recibir ayuda o dar ayuda a genesisshelter.org o por llamar o mandar mensaje de texto a nuestra línea de crisis de 24 horas al 214-946-946. 4357. Servicios bilingües de Génesis incluyen mensajes de texto, llamadas, consejería, servicios legales, asesoría y más. Llámenos o mándenos un text para más información. Siempre se necesitan donaciones para apoyar a los, las mujeres o a los niños escapando de la violencia doméstica. Aprende más a nuestra página de internet en genesisshelter.org barra inclinada donate. Gracias por unirse con nosotros. Recuerden que el terminar la violencia doméstica empiece cuando creemos a la víctima.